Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. I have a few things I want to share tonight. I have four different points I really want to make on four different topics. So I'm not going to make it a really long message, but I want to try to be thorough as I can up to a point. First thing I want to talk about is unity. The word unity means it's a state of being united or joined as a whole, becoming the same as one. In other words, if it's like 10 people with the same motive and purpose, they become like one. Or if it's 100 people, or if it's a marriage, a husband and a wife, becoming like one. It's like as a whole being in complete agreement with each other. The synonyms are oneness, unanimous, harmonious, one mind, one heart, one purpose, one voice, and one accord. Does that sound like biblical terms to you? They're very biblical. This is the heart of Jesus in John chapter 17, starting verse 20. I want you to listen to. Jesus was praying, and he said to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through the, through the word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and I are one, that they may also be in us, that, that, that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, the unity that we have is a witness to the world because the world's not in unity about anything. The world's all divided up, arguing about everything, got their own opinions, got their own ways, and strife and jealousy and all those kinds of things. That's the world. But the world should see us as being one. And he goes on to say, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. You see, Jesus and Father are one. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. That's a prayer Jesus had with the Father. That's his heart. And I can tell you, having walked with God for 43 plus years, having seen a lot of people come and go, seen a lot of strife and jealousy, seen a lot of angry tempers, seen a lot of arguments and different opinions floating through, that God so hates disunity. And we've had some among us here, as some of you know. And the Lord is telling us today, today that we need to check our hearts and see what it's going to take for all of us to be as one. 
In Ephesians, Paul was addressing the church and he said, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility. Now here's the key is humility. You cannot be one and operate as one unless there's humility. Because everybody's got their own feelings about things and their own attitudes. But when we work together as one, we have to give something up. We have to give up something of ourselves in order to work in harmony with other people that may be a little different, that think a little differently. We have to come together to find a place of common ground. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When you have unity of the Spirit, you have the bond of peace. They go together. <clears throat> and in Ephesians 4.11, Paul goes on in the same chapter to write this. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ until he gave them until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer carried about like children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every thought we have, by every feeling we have. We're no longer carried about with those things and by the trickery of men and deceitful scheming either. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted together and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So there's the picture. This is what the church is supposed to be. This is what elders as myself, teachers of the Word, are always trying to accomplish. Trying to get us all on the same page, so to speak. Trying to get us all to, to work together. Trying to get us all to love one another. Trying to remove jealousy and strife and selfish opinions and attitudes that are contrary to the unity of the faith. It's the work that seems to never end. And so, that's the heart of God. In Hebrews 13, the writer says this. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do so, or let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let me explain something here. I've heard people give the argument, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about smoking, or nothing in the Bible that says anything about smoking marijuana, or doing drugs, or doing this or doing that. Well, that's true. But there are hardcore principles laid down in the Bible 
that you can fit almost anything that you can imagine into to see if it fits with the heart and nature of God. And since there's not a Bible verse for every situation in every society with every kind of tradition that men have ever devised, every culture that's ever lived, there's not a Bible verse to fit every kind of circumstance and situation. That's why He gave elders and leaders for men to obey. And they set standards. And they set standards based upon their understanding of the Word of God, upon the situation of the society that we live in, upon the circumstances of people's lives, upon the traditions that men have followed, upon all kinds of things that they have to evaluate and look at the tendencies and the, and the, and the trends and say, you know, we need to better watch out for this. For there's no Bible verses, for an example, about how to, how to use the Internet, but we know that there's problems that are associated with that if you use it the wrong way. So anyway, elders and teachers and leaders, they set standards. Those standards should reflect the times we live in, the society that, we're, that we are a part of. And they should be a result of the many years that the elder has lived and walked with God. You see, the word elder means old or aged or experienced or seasoned man of God. And that's true also for the female, the woman who's lived a long time in walk with God. As an older woman, teaching younger women how to love their husbands, be workers at home, be simple and pure and godly, and to care for their children. These are the things that they know how to teach and to impart into the younger women so that they can walk with God in a manner worthy. And so these older men and these older women, they establish standards and they promote these standards as something to live by, not as laws where people have to live under laws by compulsion or force, but as a standard that we all voluntarily agree through the spirit of unity to work with each other and agree upon so that we can please God by being of one mind and one heart. <clears throat> and these standards that are set by the leaders of the church, they are backed up by God. And the reason they're backed up by God because He established the leaders to set standards for the times that men lived in and for the situations they were in. It's just like it was with the Rechabites in the book of Jeremiah. The Rechabites, they had a father named Father Rechabite. He was an old man. And he knew and believed the word of the Lord that Israel was going to be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Babylonians. And he foresaw a problem if his descendants lived in houses and were, in other words, fixed in a location and planted vineyards and lived off of the land in the place they lived. And that would also be a problem for them to not drink wine since they wouldn't be having vineyards. So he told them not to plant vineyards, not to drink wine, and not to live in houses, but to live in tents. And he wanted them to be mobile so that when the, when the attack came, they could move around and miss being captured. And so after all this had happened, and it did happen, years later, the descendants of the Rechabites, their sons and their grandsons and great-grandsons, 
were there in the land. And so Jeremiah, prophet of the Lord, was told by God to bring the Rechabites into the temple. And he told them, that is, Jeremiah told the Rechabites, to drink wine. He, poured, he brought pitchers of wine out and set them out for them and said, drink wine. And they said, we will not drink wine. For our father Rechabite told us not to drink wine, not to live in houses, and not to plant vineyards. And we're going to obey him. And then the Lord spoke up and said, you see, Jeremiah, I'm a father to Israel, but they don't obey me. And yet the Rechabites obey their father. He said, there will always be eternally a Rechabite standing before me. So what is a Rechabite? A Rechabite is anyone who obeys the teachings and the leadings of those that have been placed in their life, where it's their parents or godly men or elders in the church that have given them standards to live by, and they obey them. There wasn't anything technically wrong with living in a house. There wasn't anything technically wrong with planting a vineyard or even drinking some wine. There wasn't anything particularly wrong with any of those things except their father had instructed them with a standard not to do it. And that was righteousness before the Lord. And we need to understand that in the body of Christ better. Because sometimes we get in this opinion, well, I don't see a problem with that or that won't bother me, that won't affect me. I don't see why we can't do this or that. When some of us have lived a long time, <clears throat> have seen a lot of problems when certain things are practiced a certain way. So, the standards, again, are not like rules that are being done by force. We, we voluntarily agree to pull together and listen to those that are instructing us. That way it's done voluntarily, not by compulsion. And we don't need to get it like it's a law and try to obey it by the letter of the law. Rather, we need to get the spirit of it, get the heart of it, and just want to be able to go along peaceably and practice unity with each other. And not just try to go with our own opinion. <clears throat> no one has to follow these standards, by the way. You don't have to, and, and certainly there have been people along the way that didn't. But let me tell you what's going to happen. If you don't follow the instructions of your parents, if you're children or young people that are living at home with your parents, or you don't follow the instruction of the older men or the older women that are instructing you on how to live your life, if you don't follow the instruction and those standards, you're going to be in division. You're going to become a faction. And the scripture says that factions and divisions shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you're going to eventually fall away. Or if you hide your sin long enough and sneak around and just be quiet and don't mention anything. And just go along on the outside like you're agreeing but really not in your heart. Then you're going to die in your sins and you won't inherit the kingdom. That's how serious this is. Oh, I've heard people say, well, I just don't agree with that. Yet Paul said, we need to be in agreement. And I've heard people say, well, I just don't understand that. Don't make any sense to me. Or I just don't see it that way. 
Or I don't see why we have to do it that way. Or I'm just not there yet. I'm just not there yet. I'm not, I'm not, I just don't quite, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Or I've heard it said, well, that's not my standard. That's your standard. Or that's Don's standard. Or that's somebody else's standard. That's my dad's standard or my mom's standard. But it's not my standard. Does that really fly with God? Shouldn't we all have the same standard? If we're going to walk in unity and harmony and be in agreement, shouldn't we choose to give up our own opinion, our own way, lay down our life, take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus? Shouldn't that be the way it should be? You see, these attitudes I just described, they're dangerous attitudes. Unless they're corrected, they will bring destruction. And they will cause divisions. And if you get somebody with a, with a different opinion, a strong opinion, they're going to affect other people. It's true in the church. It's true in the business world. You have a, if you have a company, you have, you, know, you have a dozen employees, and one of them is a griper and a complainer and a fault finder, or he disagrees with the, the policies of the company, he's going to go around talking and getting people on his side to agree with him and cause trouble in the company. In business, I used to call him Mr. Trouble. And when I discovered Mr. Trouble, I fired him. I didn't care how good of a technician he was or good of an employee he was in other ways, Mr. Trouble was going to cause problems. And so when I got rid of Mr. Trouble, then things went back to harmony and peace again. So it is in the body of Christ. Sometimes we have to put Mr. Trouble out of the body to save the lives and souls of other people in the body. So don't be a Mr. Trouble. Paul said in Romans 15, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you further about a standard. A standard is a principle that we all agree on in the spirit of unity to live by. For an example, no sex before marriage is a clear biblical statement, right? We can easily see that that principle is solid biblical is a solid biblical principle. No sex before marriage. Anybody can read the Bible and see that, right? <clears throat> but the Bible doesn't speak directly concerning every possible situation that one could get into before they had sex before marriage. And since we live in strange times and, you know, 100 years ago, people weren't, girls and boys weren't riding around in cars and getting in back seats because they didn't have cars. People lived on farms. And so if somebody said 100 years ago or, or more than 100 years ago, you shall not ride in a car alone with another young man, lady, it would have seemed weird because there was nothing, no car to ride in. So you see what I'm saying? In every situation, in every society, and according to what's going on, you have to set principles. But maybe back then, maybe the father would have said, young lady, don't ever get in the barn with a young man. <laughs> see? Who knows? See? What this, or don't, don't ride in the, in the wagon 
over the hill with a young man. Whatever it takes, see, to keep them from getting into the situation, to keep them away from no sex before marriage. You see what I'm saying? So elders establish standards in the church according to the times that we live in for the protection of, un, un, uh, of inexperienced and naive people. And a lot of times that's young people. So an elder might, for an example, might establish a standard that says uh, for unmarried males and females to not be alone together in close quarters, especially at night, especially maybe in situations where it could lead to sex before marriage. And even if it didn't lead to sex before marriage, it could also be a stumbling block for somebody else that was weak in that area if they saw or knew you were doing it because then they might stumble and fall into it. So wisdom says, hey, you know, we don't want sex before marriage. You know, you could get pregnant, you could ruin your life, end up with the wrong person, on and on and on and on. Lose your education, lose your opportunities, ruin your reputation, have health problems, have to raise a child when you're a kid yourself, on and on and on. Not to mention the spiritual side of it. Those that commit fornication will not inherit the kingdom. So there's just no end to the headaches and problems associated with sex before marriage. So, wise old men and women would say to young people or to other people who were inexperienced again or naive, hey, don't put yourself in a situation where it could lead to something else. Because if you never get in that situation, you'll never get in the other situation. See? That's why they're standard set by older people. So, it's something to think about. And this is the heart of God. Getting back to the heart of God again. Which is more important to the Lord? That we argue and hash over the ins and outs of certain circumstances like someone might say, well my circumstances are different. I'm not like that. Or the, one I'm, or the person I, I like to be with, they're not like that. Or we're not, we're not in that frame of mind. Or whatever. But what if the Lord just wants us to be in agreement? For the sake of the body, for the sake of the appearance of how it may look to be evil, may have the appearance of evil. I remember a young man that used to be in our old fellowship years ago. He, he was gone somewhere real late at night or came out of town. And I don't remember what happened, but his car was left at this girl's house that was a friend, that was a daughter of a friend of his. And somehow he had to go by there late at night. And he, got, he, came, he got a cab or something to go to her house to pick up his car. And it was real late and he was real tired. And she said, why don't you just come in and sleep on the couch? So he did. And nothing happened but just sleeping on the couch. But the neighbor next door thought that so-called Christian girl was having an affair with another man. It ruined her reputation. Because it looked like when he spent the night, well, you know what happens there. Even though nothing really happened, but it looked like it did. It was the appearance of evil. It ruined the witness of Christ. It wasn't what God would have had anybody do. He should never have stepped in that door. He should have gotten in his car and went home. I don't care how tired he was. 
And situations like that do happen sometimes where you're tempted to make a compromise. But a standard is something you live by. It's a standard that you live by. Ever since I've turned to the Lord for 40-something years, I do not get alone with a woman in a room or a car by myself. If I am going to have to sit in the car with her, all the doors are going to be open in broad daylight. <laughs> I just don't do it. And no one can accuse me of anything inappropriate because I'm not going to put myself in that situation. That's a standard that I live by. I'm not saying everybody has to be that strict, but my point is a standard is something we live by. Period. Or it's not a standard. If you can manipulate the standard to change it to suit certain circumstances that you think are different, then it's not a standard. It doesn't mean anything. So, so what does the Lord want? What's far more important? <clears throat> Your opinions and feelings about something to be divisive or to be different or to be opposing? Or would it be better just to be harmonious and be unanimous on the principles rather than have technical arguments and factious opinions? What do you think the Lord really wants from His people? So that was the first point I wanted to make. That was about unity. The second point I want to bring up is about the self problem. Self. Selfishness. It's the selfishness or the self problem is this. It's being concerned excessively with oneself or with one's own well-being or with one's own thoughts and, and feelings and desires and do, doing so without regard for others' feelings and needs. In other words, it's putting self first. So there's different kinds of self so I want to talk today about. The first one is about being self-centered. Here's a picture of self-centered. So in case you hadn't thought of it, think about this. Self-centered is manifested when someone talks too much. Uh-oh. That's me sometimes. I do that sometimes. I talk too much. I'm learning not to talk so much. But that's being self-centered. Self-centered is wanting attention toward yourself. Self-centered is wanting to be noticed by other people or wanting to be thought well of by others or just wanting to hold up a good image, make everybody think well of you. Another one is wanting to appear to know something about just about anything that is talked about. You ever seen something? You can, you can start talking about wild animals and you know, somebody that's a know-it-all, they won't pitch in, but they'll start telling you all they know about wild animals. Or you could, just any subject you could talk about, they've got some things to say about it because they want you to know that they know something about it. And self-centered is also man-pleasing. Wanting others to approve of you. Wanting the approval of man. 
wanting to please people, wanting to think you're a good person, you're, think you're a loving person, a kind person, just wanting people to think the best of you. That's all to do with being self-centered. So, there's a picture of self-centered. There's a lot more to be said about it, but I just wanted to kind of briefly touch on it. Another self is self-defense. Self-defense is making excuses for everything. No matter what somebody points out to you, you got us an excuse for it. You got a reason it happened or why it happened or it was somebody else or it was this or that. It was this. It was the, the dog ate my homework. Well, I had a headache. Well, I didn't feel good that day. Or this happened, that happened. But it's never your fault. That is self-defense. Putting up the guard. Bouncing off the instruction, correction, or remarks that may come your way. Another self-defense is to avoid correction. To avoid the people that will correct you. To avoid the people that will have input in your life that actually might address something that's wrong with you so you can actually be changed for the better. Another self-defense is avoiding people who can see and discern what is really going on with you. You know, you may say, oh, I'm doing just fine. And you may tell that to five people that don't have a lot of discernment, but maybe there's two or three people that you don't get too close to because they may question you on something and dig a little deeper. That's self-defense. And self-defense is also just flat out being defensive when you are corrected and doing everything you can to avoid your own cross. Because let me explain to, something to you. The work of God in the body of Christ through the people of God that have wisdom, insight, and have the Word of the Lord is to teach you and show you the way to your cross, which is where you suffer. It's where you overcome. It's where your life is saved. You will never be saved as long as you stay in your comfort zone. It takes, it takes hammering and correction and reproof and instruction and sometimes just a flat out rebuke. But it takes correction for us to be able to live. And it's for everyone. It says in Proverbs that correction is the way of life. And if you have the spirit of self-defense, you will avoid correction as much as you can because you're so concerned with yourself you don't want to have to be embarrassed or humbled or you don't want anything pointed out that might be wrong with you because you're of, of an earthly mindset and you're not thinking about going to heaven and thinking about overcoming and thinking about what God wants you're just thinking about how you feel which is really the way of the world so that's self-defense. <clears throat> the next self is self-willed. It's someone who is stubborn, having difficulty yielding to authority, who's kind of independent, who's a self-thinker. Well, I don't, I don't, you know, I just need me and God. You know, you heard somebody say before, well, you don't need all those people's opinion in the body of Christ. You just need God. 
Just me and God. We're, the Lord talks to me and He talks to you and we don't need anybody else to tell us anything. Self-willed. Having difficulty yielding to authority or leadership. Being independent and not really wanting or searching for input or advice from others before making major decisions. <clears throat> Just acting more on your own than seeking out wise counsel. Now we sometimes see this, especially with teenagers who think they've got it all figured out. But I'll tell you something, it's not just a teenager problem. I see it in adults 30, 40, 50, sometimes even 60 years of age who just don't really want input because that input may not be what they really want to do and they don't want anybody busting their bubble so their focus again is on the earth rather than on the heart and the things above. That's a self-willed, stubborn person. And you go read in the Proverbs about stiff-necked, stubborn people, how they really don't get anything from God except blows on the back. So we don't want to be like that. Another self-problem is the self-concerned. Always concerned and fearful. Fearful about the future. Fearful about not going to have enough money. Fearful and anxious about the what-ifs. You know about the what-ifs. Well, what if this happens? And what if this don't happen? What if, what if this turns this way or things go that way? What, what if? And they're concerned about things that have not happened yet and probably never will. But they're using up a lot of spiritual energy worrying about something that's not even a fact yet. When Jesus said, don't be anxious for tomorrow, for today's got enough trouble of its own. Just deal with what you have to today. Let God take care of tomorrow. And if tomorrow brings problems, then you have to work through it the best you can with God's help. <clears throat> and sometimes this self-concern, it's really all about your own self, your, your protection, your, your security here on earth, your security. Hey, the only security we have is that if we endure to the end, we have heaven waiting on us. The economy could totally crash tomorrow. We could have an atomic weapon fired from Russia and land on us tomorrow. We could die in a car wreck tomorrow. There's things that could happen tomorrow that we haven't even thought of. But our security is not on this earth. It's not in money. It's not in our, quote, future here. My future's in heaven. And the older I get, the more aware of that I am. And we need to think about that more. We need to set our mind really on heaven. We're just passing through. We're just aliens and strangers. Passing through. What does it matter if the economy crashes? What does it matter if we never have any more money or we lose the money we have. What does it really matter in the long run? What's it going to matter 50 or 100 years from now? Nothing. So sometimes this worrying about all these kinds of things leads to a type of stinginess where we want to hold on to what we have with a tight fist. We're afraid to share it. We're afraid 
afraid to entrust it to situations that we maybe we might lose it or we don't know how to how to protect ourselves from the possibilities, the what ifs. So it leads to a type of stinginess. And even making negative remarks that would somehow discredit the faithfulness of God on how He has always provided for us all. Everybody here has been able to eat well and sleep with cover and have clothing. What else, what else do we need? Everybody here is blessed. Some of us more, more so than others. But we have everything provided. And always have had. To start talking with fear and worry and, you know, like, what are we going to do? Oh me, oh me, oh me. Are we really giving glory to God? Are we really showing how faithful He's been to us before? Are we reminding people, I don't care how it looks right now, let me tell you about my God. He has always provided for me and I trust that He always will. And if I don't have it, I don't need it. Praise be the Lord. Anyway, that's self-concerned. The next self is self-pity. Self-pity is all about feeling sorry for oneself. One's poor little self. Nobody's been through what I've been through. Nobody's as bad as I am. Nobody's as, as so much of a failure as I've been. It's continually, self-pity is continually degrading itself as a failure or as just being no good or can't do anything right or something along those lines. Self-pity loves wallowing, and I mean wallowing in self-pity and wallowing in guilt it's accustomed to those miserable feelings, and, and so it feels at home doing that. It's a type of exotic pleasure for somebody who loves self-pity because they get to wallow in it, feeling sorry for themselves. And they do so. I mean, it's all right. We all have sometimes have regrets and feel guilty and are ashamed of ourselves and sometimes feel bad about what's happened. There's nothing wrong with it up to a point. But I'm talking about when it goes way beyond what the situation calls for. It becomes more of a lifestyle. And then it leads to depression and, and self-abasement. You know, just beating yourself up. Just wanting to go out and kill yourself or jump off a cliff or you want to think about it anywhere or talk about it or say, I could just kill myself. Or having feelings of inferiority or, or worthlessness or whatever. And if you do have another failure in your life, you missed something, you made a mistake, you did something wrong, then it brings back all those failures of the past that are just all compounded. There we go again. Just, I'm just no good. Feel sorry for myself. I'm just down and out. I'm just worthless. See, that's not of God. So, one time I drew a diagram on the marker board. And it was like an exponential curve. And people that do math will know about an exponential curve. And at the top of the exponential curve, when it went to the very top, was a, was a high level of pride. And at the very bottom 
was a, a level of humility. And what went up the curve was self-pity. Is self-pity is the most ugliest form of pride because it's a kind of a way of, of, of thinking you, it's feeling sorry for yourself, but in a kind of a negative type of way where you think you deserve to feel sorry for yourself. Like it's happened to you, you're a poor, pitiful person, you somehow have an excuse to feel sorry for yourself. It's awful. Anyway, don't go down that road. We need to give praise to God. If we stumble, get up. Righteous stumble seven times, get up and they run. They overcome. They repent. They acknowledge their sins and move on. Don't stay in it. Don't stay down there in the wallowing in the mire of self-pity. It's ugly before God. Another self is self-confidence, which is kind of the opposite of self-pity. It's Mr. Pride. Oh, Mr. Pride knows it all. Oh, he knows the, oh yeah, he understands. He knows what the scripture says. He knows what God wants. He does this. He knows that. He knows all about everything. And you can't hardly tell him anything because he already knows it. If you start trying to tell Mr. Pride or Mr. Self-Confidence anything, he'll almost interrupt you because he already knows about what you're telling him. So he's not really very easily taught. And it's something that the youth, <laughs> young people have a big problem with. Not only young people, but older people sometimes too. This is what I call teenageritis. You know, they know everything. They've got it all figured out. And we old people just don't understand, they think. So I'm not going to beat up the young people. I love them, but got to watch out. Self-confidence is a very dangerous thing. It's the opposite of humility. It's the opposite of saying, hey, can you show me the way here or tell me what's best or give me some good ideas or can you help me figure this out? See, that's humility. That's not Mr. Self-confidence. And the last self I'm going to talk about is self-righteousness. You know, self-righteousness is a person who's blind to their own faults and sins. They don't seem to see them, but everybody else does. And, and others are having to point it out to them again and again. And they just can't see themselves because they're blind to it. Because they're, in their mind, they're righteous or they're okay or they're right. And if you ask them how they're doing, they go, oh, I'm doing great. Oh, we're doing fine. My marriage is great. My life is good. I'm doing good. But really... They're not doing so well. <clears throat> you see it says in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, uh, take heed if you think you stand lest you fall. That's what he's talking about is self-righteous. Believe that you're right with God because another way that sometimes people believe they're right with God because they do, they do some of the do's. You know, we talked about standards earlier. So we have some standards. Say, well, here's what we should do. So they mechanically do the do's. And then there's some don'ts, you know, that you don't do. And so they mechanically do, don't do the don'ts. So they do the do's and don't do the don'ts. And so they think they're righteous because they've done the do's and the don'ts. And they've done it according to technicality. By, I call it the letter of the law. Mechanically, but their heart has not changed. That's what the Pharisees were. 
Pharisees were very careful to obey the do's and the don'ts. But Jesus said, your hearts are far from me. That's the self-righteous. So, what's missing is the Spirit. If you do the do's and the don'ts without the Spirit, you're just a Pharisee who doesn't have his heart right with God. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone, and I want to emphasize anyone, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. There we go. There's self. Now we talk about a bunch of selves, and there's a lot more selves. I could have, I could have made a whole teaching out of selves tonight, but I just want to pick a few of them. And, uh, but the key is, if we want to walk with Jesus, we have to deny self of self. And submit ourselves to the Lord. And he says, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what he's saying is, if you're trying to keep your life like it is and protect yourself with all those selves we've covered, you're going to lose it. <laughs> it's only when you give it up. When you surrender, you surrender yourself to God. You give up your pride. You give up your image. You give up your false statements. You give up your half-truths. You just give it all up. And then you'll find truth. You'll find life. And there's so many self-problems that we can have. And I'm not saying that everything, everything is doom and gloom here. We got, we got a lot of people that are growing and changing. But if the shoe fits, wear it. I just want you to be aware of the, of the self-issue and how sometimes it manifests. So in order to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves of self and take up our cross and follow Him. The third main point I want to make tonight is about walking in the light. <clears throat> walking in the light. Ephesians 5, verse 5 says, For know this with certainty. In other words, you can put this in the bank. You can know this for absolutely for sure that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's just not there. You just don't have it if you're there. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. Light. What is light? Light is that which you can see. You can see what's there. You can see what's going on. Walk as children of the light. Walk to where people can see you. Where they can see what's going on with you. Where they can see who you really are. Where they can see how you really believe and think and feel and act. And they can see your motives of your heart. Walk in the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 
do not participate, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, instead even expose them. So darkness is the opposite of light. Darkness is when you hide or you do things in secret, or you have a, a secret agenda, or you're not straight up and honest, or you only tell half-truths. This is called darkness. <clears throat> so, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things done by them in secret. So, secret and darkness go together. Doing things in secret, living a secret life, having a secret agenda, having secret opinions, that's darkness. That's the opposite of walking in the light and walking in harmony and honesty with the people of God. He goes on to say in the next verse, verse 13, Ephesians 5, 13, Paul said, But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. So let me just, there's a lot more I could do. I've done full-blown teachings on walking in the light. I'm not going to do that here. But what I want to say is this. One of the major key ways that the Lord has established to cleanse the body of Christ from leaven, from sin, from corruption, from the corrupt nature, from, from a divisiveness, from everything that can take us away from the kingdom of God, one of the key ways that God has designed for that to happen in the body is for us to walk in the light. <clears throat> he wants members to stop hiding behind curtains and peeking around the curtain. When I say curtain, I'm talking about the the part of your life that you're not revealing. One time years ago, I did a teaching at the old gateway where we had the big marker boards, and I drew a picture of the narrow road that leads to life, and how all the light shining on this narrow road, it's really bright. In the middle of that road, there's sunshine, there's light, it's clear. But over to the sides of the road, there was bushes, and there were curtains, and there were, there were well, there was dark places where people could hide. Instead of people walking on the narrow road of life, many of them, and some of them at that time among us, and maybe today even still, were walking over in the shadows. And they were trying to walk and follow the road, but over in the shadows, and over in the, you know, in the bushes, and behind the trees, and behind curtains, and behind big boulders and stuff. And they were kind of trying to act like they were on the road, but they were really hiding their life. That's the way of death. We've got to get on that narrow path. If we're going to see life, it's a very narrow path. It's out in the open. No secret lives there. No secret agendas. No pretenses. No lies. No half-truths. Just the light. So, in 1 John it talks, about, it talks about walking in the light also in 1 John. And it says, by this we know. When you walk in the light as He's in the light, by this you know 
that you belong to Him. By this you know that your soul is saved. By this you know you're in the kingdom. Why is that? Because you're walking in the light. By this you know that you belong to Him. <clears throat> and I want to make this clear. It's not that every personal and private matter that you have has to be disclosed to other people. They don't need to know when your back hurts or you had a headache or they don't need to know when your tire went flat or anything like that. We don't have to talk about every little thing. What matters is that anything that affects the unity of the body needs to be out in the open. Anything that raises any questions about doctrine needs to be out in the open. Anything that might be questionable concerning standards that we've established needs to be out in the open. <clears throat> and anything that we might think we want to do that might become a stumbling block to somebody else needs to be discussed and out in the open. Or anything else that could affect the safety and welfare of anyone, whether it's physical or spiritual, needs to be out in the open. That's what we're talking about here. It should be that when you see my life, that what you see is the way it is. And when I look at you and your life, there, it should be exactly the way it is. There shouldn't be any kind of parts over here in the shadows that I don't know about that would change the way I might view who you are. That's called hypocrisy. That's called deception. That's called guile. And God hates it. And I do too. So in general, we should live our lives like open books with no hidden motives, no secret agendas, or views of our own that we hold to ourselves that we know would be in conflict with the body as a whole. <clears throat> that would affect the unity of the body. It should be that whatever we present of ourselves and our lives should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There should be no half-hearted, false impressions, half-truths, misconceptions, being secretive about something, leaving out parts that would make a difference if you told the whole thing, and say, then saying, oh, I told you about that, when you really didn't tell the whole thing. You told a part of it, but the other part you left out, and that makes a big difference. That's called deception. <clears throat> I have walked with God a long time. I've met with hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years. Spoken in many places. I have observed for decades that the people who really don't change, who don't grow, the ones that we have to keep revisiting the same old problems again and again, go full circle, we're back to it again, are people that themselves have hidden and played games and pretended 
and have avoided instruction and correction. The Lord has so designed the body of Christ. There were all supposed to be open books. Our lives should be viewed by everyone as the way it really is. So we can watch after each other. So if anything's wrong or anything comes in upon one of us, some deception or some weakness or some sin or some whatever, that we should be able to see it and help the other one get out of the ditch. But if we're lying and hiding and pretending and covering it up, there's no help there. None whatsoever. And people who don't change and don't grow, they will eventually die in their sins or fall away from the body because they get tired of the correction. They get tired of the same old, same old. They get tired of having to go through the same things again and again. So, don't hide. Just come on out. If you're hiding, if you're pretending, or you're leaving out parts of your life that you're, you're, you're trying to protect yourself from, you're, all you're doing is killing yourself. You're not protecting yourself from anything. Protection is when we get our sins dealt with. That's when we're cleansed. If we repent, they have to be exposed and we have to be humbled. We have to turn to the Lord and turn away from our sins. So the fourth main point I'm going to make tonight is about true repentance. That led me to true repentance. In Ezekiel 33, the Lord said, or Ezekiel was writing, He said, when I, the Lord said, but when I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what, pays back what he's taken by robbery, walks in the statutes which ensure life without committing further iniquity, then he will surely live. He shall not die. And none of his sins which he has committed will be remembered against him. He has now practiced justice and righteousness. He shall surely live. That's the gospel right there. That's the whole gospel in a nutshell. And so Jesus in Luke chapter 13 said this, in 13, 6 said, And Jesus began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in a vineyard, in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, that is on the fig tree that he planted, and he didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year, too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. So here's my point I'm making. The Lord is looking for fruit on our tree. Our tree is us. He planted us in the body of Christ. He planted us in His kingdom. He didn't plant, it, plant us here just to sit here and go through the same emotions over and over again. He put us here to bear fruit. So, I'm asking a serious question today. 
I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm raising this question. How long has the Lord been looking for fruit of a certain kind, a certain type on your tree? You may have some fruit that's already there that's good, but He wants the full tree to be in bloom. And He wants it to produce fully all the fruit it's supposed to. If you've got an area of your life that keeps coming up over and over and over again, how long has it been since He's been dealing with you on that? How long has the Lord instructed us about that? Has it been long enough yet? When is it going to change? What is it going to take then for us to truly repent and turn from it? See, repentance, let me explain something to you. The false religious system will tell you that repentance, they will tell you that repentance is just saying you're sorry. Or saying I'm a sinner or something like that. Or confessing that you did something wrong. That's not repentance. Repentance is not words. Repentance is a changed life. Repentance is bearing fruit. The fruit of repentance. In repentance you completely move away from the sin and no longer practice it. So, I'm being honest now. I'm going to tell you that I'm, I'm being honest that I believe we as, as a church, Gateway, have become somewhat stale. It seems that there's a lot of disconnect among us. N disconnect from each other, which simply tells me that there's dis disconnect from the Lord. It's, for, it pl it's plain in 1 John that if we have fellowship that is heart-to-heart, -heart, intimate relationships with God, that we will automatically have it with each other. And when we don't have it with each other, that means we're not having it with God. So I think we need revival here. I think we need full heart repentance in some areas. I think it's time to change. I think it's time to wake up, check our fruit. I'm just being honest. If I'm wrong, prove me wrong. <clears throat> I believe that several of us, maybe many of us, need to do a serious recheck of our walk and look at those self-issues that we have. Look at those self-issues about self and see if there's anything there the Lord would have us to turn from. <clears throat> and I'm not complaining because this is my duty and my job before the Lord. As long as I'm alive, I will labor to teach and instruct and correct and do whatever I can to help any of you or anybody else make it into the kingdom. My goal is that we all make it into the kingdom, into the eternal kingdom. But I'm being honest with you. Reed and I find ourselves re-instructing the same instruction again and again to some of the same people over and over again. I'm not complaining, but isn't it time that we started changing and bearing the fruit.
Isn't it time that the men in this fellowship, for example, had more to share? Isn't it time that we learn how to obey the instruction that's been given to us in so many areas? And like I said before, I'm getting really old. Really, and I won't be around forever. We're concerned about what's going to become of everyone. Are you going to walk? Are you going to walk now? Are you going to overcome? Are you going to overcome now? I'm just asking. If you haven't, why haven't you? You see, repentance is not about just saying words or even acknowledging a wrong. It's about having a changed life and a change in direction with old things passing away and everything becoming new. So I don't want to hear you tell me how good you're doing. Just show me. Just show me. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, he said this, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but power. Power in your life. Power over your fears. Power over your anxieties. Power over your weaknesses. Power over your sins. Power over all the thoughts that plague you. Power over your whatever that you, that you continually seem to struggle with. It's, you're supposed to have power. I'm supposed to have power. We're supposed to have power. The song says wonder-working power. We should have power. We shouldn't be afraid of conflict or afraid of trouble or afraid of correction or afraid of anything. God has not given His people a spirit of fear and timidity. So Paul said to the Corinthians, what, is your, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's up to you. But he did say, when I come, I want to see your power. So there are four main points I made tonight. The first one was about unity or the lack thereof. The second was about the self problem. Third one is about walking in the light versus hiding with half truths and pretenses. And the fourth one was about true repentance versus talking. I love all of you, and I hope that I haven't made you feel too bad tonight. That wasn't my goal if I did. My hope is that you've been stirred up that you've been stirred up to look at your life, to get close to God, to cry out to God, to dig into Him, to, to have a passion for truth, and to beg of Him to change your life, whatever you need. He has everything we need. If you don't have faith, ask Him for faith. If you're fearful, ask Him to help you overcome it. 
If you have unrepented sin, begging for strength to overcome it and repent of it. If you're too proud, ask Him to humble you. If you lack self-control, ask Him to help you with it. There's no excuse for any of us to remain as we are if we're not right. Life is short. Our time here on earth is going to be gone before long. What then? What are we going to say then? Will we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? Or will we be making excuses like the wicked servant who didn't really do with what God gave him to do with? Are we going to be making excuses? What is it going to be? So are we going to stay stale? Or are we going to seek God for revival? I started praying today for revival right here among us. Revival. I believe we need to be revived. I think we need to get our minds off the earth. Get our mind on things above and on eternity and on heaven and on the ways of God. I think we need to quit making excuses for ourselves and justifying ourselves and whining about things and grumbling about things. I think it's time for us to be revived. Lord, I ask you to have mercy on these, my brothers and sisters, and on me as well, Lord. Give us a heart for you. Stir us up, Lord. Bring revival among us. Expose every sin among us, Lord. Bring everything to the surface. Everything, Lord, that's hidden, expose it. Everyone that's hidden, expose them. Cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse us from all impurity, that we be a pure body, without spot or wrinkle, that we as a body would be acceptable to you, that all the leaven would be removed. I pray in Jesus' name that you would accomplish this among us, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine... The Great Deception.